What's going on? Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and today's episode is presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it. And I'm joined by my definition of family, my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Gosh, talk to me, man. Let's take this SUVW of a podcast for a spin and uh, wax poetic about Jimmy Butler for the next 45 to 60 minutes. I think that is probably the right way to go here. We're recording this on Monday morning after Jimmy Butler with just a magisterial Game 3 performance gets the Miami Heat back into the finals. And I think Butler is where we'll start, but really... To me, there are kind of three prongs to this game three, one of which was Butler just being completely out of his mind and putting forth really one of the best finals performances we've ever seen. Another one was the Heat's defensive adjustments and the way that they were able to shut down the Lakers offense. And one of them, I think, was kind of just a lack of urgency in general from the Lakers, seemingly just not really taking the Heat particularly seriously. But I do think Butler is where we should start because that was just an absolute masterpiece. 40 points, 11 rebounds, 13 assists, two steals, two blocks, a plus 20 in 45 minutes of action. He scored 26 points in the paint. He created 35 points with his assists. He could have even had more than 13 that he had because he had 26 potential assists. And he did all that while primarily guarding LeBron James. He did it all without attempting a single three-pointer. I mean, we can just go on and on with the numbers themselves. Like in the basketball reference database, which I think goes back to 1984, uh, when they came up with game score as kind of like an all-in-one to describe how productive a player was in one particular game. This was the second best game score in a finals game after LeBron's Game 6 against the Warriors in 2016. The Heat also, they did not score a single point in his three minutes on the bench. They got outscored by nine in those three minutes. And Eric Spolstra, I guess, recognizing that, really didn't keep him on the bench for very long. His second and last stint on the bench came at the start of that fourth quarter, and it lasted all of 55 seconds. And I guess, you know, the real luxury of having a guy like Jimmy Butler. And I guess you could say just having hashtag heat culture where part of your identity is that your team is just in better shape than any other team in the league is you can ride your guys that hard. Uh, And Butler was able to play basically the entirety of the game without looking any worse for the wear down the stretch. So I'm going to hand it over to you our resident Jimmy Butler stan, expert, whatever you'd like to call yourself, and you can wax poetic about your guy, as I know you did in the story you put up last night. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned like the heat culture thing. I can't, was it Iguodala or Crowder um, that in the middle of the playoffs, like they asked him about his experience in Miami compared to all his other stops as an NBA vet. And I think he said for him, heat culture, yeah, part of heat culture is as simple as we're going to be in better shape than every team we compete against. I think you kind of hit that on the head with the fact they were able to play Jimmy 45 minutes. Yeah, look, you you already mentioned some of the numbers. I mean, there's more. You know, this was LeBron James's 52nd NBA Finals game. And this was the first time in those 52 games that a player, whether by hit, a teammate or opponent, a player in general, out-rebounded him, outscored him, 
and I would assisted him. First time in 52 tries, Jimmy Butler did that. Jimmy Butler scored and or assisted on 73 points in this game. That is tied for the second most ever in a finals game. So, you know, this wasn't just like a great scoring performance, which it was. It was insanely, he he scored 40 points on, I believe, 26 total uh, like individual possessions. And he did an attempt a three-pointer. Like, do, do you know how hard it is to score inefficient 40 points in the modern NBA without the benefit of a three three ball? Not because he doesn't have one, just because he didn't take one. But like the last guy to do it was Shaq. The last guy to score 40 in the finals game without a three-point attempt was Shaq 18 years ago. And of course, the difference being Shaq was like an interior, a once-in-a-lifetime physically dominant interior player. Jimmy Butler, you know, at times in game three, bulldozed his way to the rim and you know, was in there like a bruising big man, but that's not who Jimmy Butler is. Jimmy Butler is like a wing scorer. And for the last couple of games, though, Bam Adebayo and Goran Dragic has been kind of more like a quarterback type. Those guys aren't supposed to be able to score 40 points efficiently without taking a three-pointer. Like he just had the whole package going. You know, another number I mentioned in the post that I wrote was, you know, in uh, whatever, I think it was like 71 previous, in his first 71 career playoff games, Jimmy Butler had never had a 13 assist game. And then the Heat start the last two games without Dragic and Adebayo. They're, you know, their next two most important facilitators. And Jimmy Butler has back-to-back 13 assist games. It's just like everything the Heat need from him, he's giving them to them. Last night, you know, to do what he did, to score an efficient 40 points without a three um, in very like taxing type of offense, you know, to have those fearless drives throughout the game, to get put on his back on that one play by Rondo, the, you know, huge collision in midair. To do all that, to play 45 minutes of that style of offensive basketball while also defending your ass off on the other end and oftentimes guarding LeBron James is unfathomable. You know, down the stretch, he was basically manning up LeBron. Like the last, I'd say, three and a half minutes of that game, the Heat pretty much went to like man-to-man, didn't switch much, and it was like Jimmy on LeBron a lot. And he held his own. Just in every conceivable way, Jimmy Butler had his imprint on this game, put his imprint, forced his imprint on this game and outplayed LeBron James on a night when I didn't think LeBron was necessarily bad. I just think Jimmy Butler outplayed him. And I don't, I mean, I guess maybe you can find a couple instances of KD in those two series that the Warriors won pretty easily. But for the most part, it's hard to think of a guy that like truly outplayed LeBron James in every facet of a finals game. And Jimmy Butler just did that. And, you know, I mentioned it again in the post, like the guy, the guy who we all laughed about because of like the kind of silly but true story of, you know, taking a bunch of Timberwolves third stringers and beating Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins in a practice. Well, he just took a ragtag version of a Heat team that was already overmatched in this matchup and beat a LeBron AD led Lakers team in the friggin' NBA finals. Like, you know, that's me waxing poetic about him. And, and I still feel like we're like, we're not doing him justice because this performance was generational man it's one of the best finals performance we've seen and will ever see i've i've said this before i really think butler is kind of there are certain athletes who make you believe in the cliches about sports and i think for me generally i I think at the highest levels in the highest leverage like when two teams are competing in the finals for a championship to say something like oh this guy or this team just wanted it more is often so simplistic it's a little bit disingenuous and i just don't necessarily think that it's true i think realistically 
probably everybody on the floor wants it about equally, but some players are more capable of actually getting it than others. Or some people go about dealing with that desire in different ways than others do. And sometimes, honestly, wanting it too much can come back to hurt you because you're pressing and you're in your own head and you're anxious and tight. Like just having the desire is not necessarily a formula for success. But I do think like Jimmy Butler is one of those rare athletes that actually makes you believe that somehow wanting it more can actually make the difference even in a finals game. And I, you know, it's a bit of revisionist history, but like thinking back to the the pregame interview, I don't know if you saw that he did with Rachel Nichols, where he's just exuding like so much confidence and going into a game where basically the Heat season was on the line. He just had no doubt that the Heat were going to win the game. It wasn't even a question in his mind. And that's the kind of thing, you know, where you could look back afterwards and think like, of course, that's what Jimmy Butler is going to say. But deep down, he probably knows that they're in big, big trouble. But in retrospect, it's like, you know, Jimmy Butler, I guess, knew something the rest of us didn't. Uh, you know, he he had visualized that moment or he he just knew what he was capable of. And I, I knew Jimmy Butler was capable of a lot of things. I know you did, too. I don't know that I thought that he was capable of what he did in game three, because that was that wasn't just like true superstar stuff. That was top five player in the world type of stuff, which I don't think Jimmy Butler is a top five player in the world, but he is easily a top five competitor and. I think what he put on display was both his incredible talent, but also a display of his incredible will because there was nothing the Lakers could do to keep him away from the rim. And you mentioned it. It's like, it's, it's one thing to score 40 points without a three point attempt in a finals game. It's another thing to do that as a guard slash wing or whatever you want to like a point wing, whatever you want to call Jimmy Butler. Um, A guy who in this game was forced to be a primary facilitator and initiate almost every possession. It's not like Shaq, who is posting up on the block and having the ball fed to him close to the basket. Jimmy Butler actually has to take the ball and move it toward the basket. And in doing so, you know, he's not only getting himself there for scoring opportunities, but he's moving the Lakers defense around and opening up opportunities for his playmaking, which this is two games in a row now where I think his playmaking has been absolutely spectacular. And because of no Bam and no Dragic, the Heat have really needed it because they just don't have any other high-end initiators on the team. I mean, you could maybe throw Hero into that mix, but Hero hasn't been great. It's really just fallen on Butler to do all the heavy lifting on offense for this team, and he's done it without giving too much back at the defensive end. It's just, that's incredible. It's unbelievable. It's We talked about it after game two, how even in another Heat loss, like it was so evident that the only thing the Heat had was whatever Jimmy Butler was going to create for them, right? Whether that was his own scoring or what he created through his drives and penetration. And even early in game three, he was getting a lot of criticism, even on the broadcast, on Twitter. I retweeted a couple of things where it was, you know, people joking around how he loves to like turn an 89% layup into a 27% three-point attempt because he keeps kicking out when it looks like he's got a clear shot at the rim, which like some of that was fair criticism. But a lot of that too is like, look, this is the only thing the Heat have. Every single thing the Heat got in this game stemmed from Jimmy Butler. And you mentioned that, you know, they went scoreless without him on the court. Uh, If people remember, Jimmy obviously wanted to play all 40 minutes. And if people remember when they took him out, or when Eric Spolster was trying to take him out for the first time 
with about 4.15-ish, something like that, to go in the first quarter to bring Solomon Hill in, um, the cameras caught Jimmy Butler and Eric Spolster arguing about it. Like Jimmy Butler did not want to come out. He was trying to tell Eric Spolster to leave him in because I'm sure not just because he's a competitor, but also because he's a smart basketball player. Jimmy Butler probably also recognized based on what he was seeing and what he was feeling on the floor that this team was not going to be able to get anything without him, especially on the offensive end. And uh, that first stint with him on the bench was about two minutes and 20 seconds in that range. And yeah, the Lakers won those minutes six, nothing, you know, and all of a sudden instead of 22 to nine, it's like, oh, great start for the heat. It's 22, 15. And you're thinking, nah, they're not up by enough. You mentioned that 45 second or 55 second stretch to begin the fourth quarter. Again, I think it was like three, nothing for the Lakers. So it's not like they gave up a ton of points, but still, if you, if you look at the number of points they gave up in only three minutes, I think it was nine or 10 points and they didn't score a single point like his his value to the heat in general but especially without bam out of bio and goran dragic is immeasurable the imprint he left on this game was you know the stuff of legends doesn't even describe it i wrote in the piece it was like the stuff of basketball immortals like this this is the stuff that lives on forever because it was ridiculous and unbelievable in so many ways and yeah as a facilitator like if you told me jimmy butler was gonna have back-to-back 13 assist games at one point in his career I'd be like, nah, i guess it's possible but i would never bet on that like back-to-back 13 assist games in the nba finals like that's like magic johnson type stuff that's lebron type stuff that's not supposed to be jimmy butler type stuff as great as jimmy butler is but at this point it's like what what would you consider out of the realm of possibility for Jimmy Butler? You know, is Jimmy MFing buckets? And, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think what's kind of left to be decided is, is this going to be one of those, you know, heroic, valiant performances in defeat that we remember and memorialize in the same way that we remember Allen Iverson's game one against the Lakers in 2001 or LeBron's game one against the Warriors in 2018? Or is it the springboard to a historic, incredible Miami Heat comeback? And I think ultimately, as much as you know, we can laud Jimmy Butler and laud what the Heat did in this game and use it as evidence that they can win without Bam, they need Bam back. So, you know, Bam was talking before, like after game two, he told Chris Haynes that he was expecting to play in game three. You know, they're not going to get two days off before game four, but they will get two game two days off before game five. So, you know, the, the series could have been done by Tuesday had the Heat not won this game. Now we know for a fact that there will be a game five and that there will be at least that two-day break between game four and five. So that certainly makes it a whole lot more likely that we'll see Bam back at some point in the series. And, you know, whether it is in game four or game five, I mean, there's a big difference there, right? Like... I think if the Heat want to win this series, it's kind of imperative that they win game four. And I don't know that they can do that without Bam being back because I just don't know that they can replicate what they did in this game, whether it's what Jimmy did on an individual level or what their team defense did. The way that they were able to limit Anthony Davis or that Anthony Davis managed to limit himself, I don't know that you know that combination of factors is replicable. So... I do think that they need to get him back, but they've kind of given themselves a little bit of a cushion now where if, if it was three, nothing, I feel like the heat would almost be like, you know what, bam, just chill. We're not going to risk making this injury worse for a, a no shot run 
at making a comeback from zero three down against a LeBron James led team. Like that's just, there's no point in risking making the injury worse, but at two one, I mean, not that I don't think that Bam's health should be priority number one, regardless if they think that there's a chance of him making the injury worse, then I think they should play it cautiously. But I do think it changes the equation a little bit now that they have a puncher's chance. Yeah. And I think even a three, one, like, you know, obviously you want him back for game four and to try to even the series. But even if, if he's not, and they drop game four, I still think at three, one, it's well worth it. Do I think they would win three straight games or even can win three straight games against the LeBron Lakers team? Basically no, but you know, three, one's not three, nothing. And even at three, one, it's like you get game five and all of a sudden you just need to get one to force a game seven or anything can happen. So I think it can't be overstated how much the complexion of this series was changed because of Jimmy Butler's indomitable will. And and as you mentioned, we don't necessarily like boiling it down to that most of the time, like 99.9% of the time. I don't think you would hear us boil it down to that. But in this case, I don't know what else to boil it down to other than that. Jimmy Butler's indomitable will. Like you mentioned the whole sports cliche thing. I tweeted about it that one of the most overused sports cliches is player X quote unquote loves to compete. This guy loves to compete, but find me more than a couple guys in the NBA. If even that who you can like see visually with like the eyeball test genuinely get a almost disturbing joy out of competing, you know, and it it's a treat to watch like that play when Rondo just absolutely flattened him on, on what I thought was a really good, hard defensive play. It was a foul, but it was a good, hard contest and Jimmy Butler falls from a pretty good distance straight on his back. And if it's like anyone else, I'd be like, oh my God, this is a back injury. Is this guy done? They've already heard like, there's no Bam and no Dragic. And I had no, none of those worries with Jimmy Butler. And he looks hurt for a few seconds and then he pops up, literally laughs about it with Rondo, his former teammate. Just kind of like, like you could, like he got some sort of sick satisfaction out of that. You could see it. Like he was like, yes, like this is what I live for, you know? Like, yeah, like give me that hit again. I'll take it again. I like it. Gets up, makes both free throws, runs back on defense, and then gets 45 seconds off to start the next quarter. Like it's just, it's such a treat to watch a star of this caliber genuinely enjoy competing the way Jimmy Butler does. It's, uh, as I wrote, it's endearingly psychotic, you know? Like it's, mm. It's great stuff. There was a point even in that first quarter, I think it was when the Heat made it like 20 to 9 or 22 to 9 on a Butler layup and they're going into a Lakers timeout and and Jimmy's already starting to talk trash. And it's like first quarter and he's already literally like foaming at the mouth. There's like spit coming out of his mouth and like drool hanging off his lip as they like clo- like do a close up of him trash talking. It's just yeah. I guess unless you're like Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins or Ben Simmons or I don't know who, maybe Fred Hoiberg. I don't understand how anyone who likes basketball, likes pro sports, and and likes to compete could ever have an issue with Jimmy Butler. Yeah, I think you could see him mouthing to Rondo after he got up from that foul, something along the lines of like, man, you really tried to block that? And I, I, I thought that was a really great moment between you know a couple of nasty competitors and... Also, obviously, there's him going back and forth with LeBron, right? When LeBron set up that Kuzma three at the end of the first quarter, which brought the Lakers to within three, LeBron said something along the lines of, you're in trouble now. And for Butler, after he hit kind of a nail in the coffin layup late in the game, parroting that line back to LeBron, 
And I think that's just the kind of drama that this series really needs because the, those first two games were fairly drama free. And obviously the injuries played a huge part in that, but this feels like a series now. And, you know, whether or not either of those injured heat players can come back, we've talked a lot about Bam, but I think, you know, ultimately they need Dragic back too. I just think there's at least, it feels like there are real stakes here now and that the Lakers can't just coast through these next couple of games and expect to come out and win a championship. They're going to be pushed and they're going to need to find that higher gear. Like they can't come out in game four the same way that they started game three. And I mean, for what it's worth, like even the way they started the, the nine turnovers on their first, they had nine turnovers in their first 17 possessions. I mean, it, it was ridiculous. And then so a lot of it unforced too. Like, don't get me wrong. They will get into it. Like the heat did some good stuff defensively, but a lot of it was unforced too. Yeah. They, they were just turning it over left and right. It was a real comedy of errors. And then end of the first quarter, like they're down three points and they continue to play fairly sloppy basketball in the second quarter. AD very quickly picked up his third foul and wound up playing only, you know, two or three minutes in that second quarter. And then they went into the half and they were only trailing by four. And then in the, you know, in the fourth quarter, they went on like an 8-0 run and were up, I think, 91 to 89 with eight odd minutes left to play. So there were many points at which it seemed like despite the kind of substandard effort and sloppy execution that the Lakers were going to be able to pull it out anyway. And I think ultimately maybe it's good for them. It's definitely good for this series and just the quality of viewing that that didn't happen, that they recognized that that wasn't going to fly and that they weren't going to be able to win playing that way and they need to tighten their shit up. Yeah, I mean, look, their effort to start this game was embarrassing. And uh, it's interesting because I, I can't remember if it was LeBron or Vogel or maybe a collection of, of Lakers players, but between games two and three, they talked about how they wanted to avoid the letdown they had in game three against the Nuggets when they showed up looking like a team that thought they could just coast and, and just show up and you know get their finals ticket. They showed up on Sunday night against the Heat looking like they thought they could just show up and get presented the Larry O'Brien trophy. And, you know, that's not going to fly against the Jimmy Butler-led team. And, you know, I talked in previous podcasts about how I didn't think LeBron would allow this Lakers team to do that again with, you know, the stakes and what's on the line and how he he wouldn't let these guys um, miss this opportunity against this wounded Heat team. And look, again, like I don't think LeBron was necessarily bad, like especially in those first few quarters. He was the only Laker playing at an acceptable level and you could tell he was pissed by his body language with his teammates but yeah I don't know man I, I I don't expect the Lakers will be anywhere near that bad again in this series but it really was like a an embarrassing performance on their part and and you know Anthony Davis especially again I realized that the Heat you know did some stuff to take him out of the game but he helped them neutralize himself and take himself out of the game and you know to me it kind of speaks to like what what Anthony Davis is and isn't in a way. And I don't want to get like too caught up in his bad performance because he was unbelievable in games one and two. But I also think this is kind of like a good reminder of who AD is and who he isn't. And why, you know, like for as great as he is, you can't count on Anthony Davis to, I don't want to say to show up because you can't count on Anthony Davis to like play maybe with a sense of urgency 
that you expect of top, top tier superstars in the biggest moments, like all the time, right? And, you know, LeBron may have a bad game in big moments here or there, but I don't know if I've ever thought, uh, LeBron doesn't look like he's got that sense of it. Like maybe his last game as a Cav in his first stint, you know, when, when they lost to Boston, I don't know, like whenever that was, 11 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, with AD, it's it's something that happens once in a while where you're just like, does he realize it's kind of a big game or he's a playoff game? And it's a little disconcerting, right? And yeah, I don't know. We, we talked about this off air yesterday, but like this is why I think, you know, like Jimmy Butler to me is the better overall basketball player because whether it's because like stylistically, he's the kind of guy that has the ball in his hands more, can initiate more, you know, is a perimeter scorer in this age of the NBA. But I think, uh, who was it again that that tweeted what I'm about to I think say? it was you, Krishna Narsu. Right, who tweeted, uh, and I thought it was a really good question. And he, he the p- question he posed was, is Anthony Davis the best ceiling raiser in NBA history who also happens to be the worst number one option for a top 10 player? It's such an interesting like duality because... You can see his value on this Lakers team, and no one's doubting, like talent-wise, impact-wise, he is a top ten player. But then at the same time, it's like if Anthony Davis is your number one option or your overall best player, you're not competing for a championship, in my mind. And part of it has to do with the fact that he doesn't bring that sense of urgency, like night in and night out. Well, I, I don't want to let recency bias creep in here too much because I think, first of all, there's a difference between, say, being a team's best player and being its quote-unquote number one option, or even uh, between being a team's number one option and being its primary initiator. Like, those are all kind of different things. And I think, yes, like, I, you know, Davis's game isn't geared towards him being a guy who is initiating possessions. He's more of a play finisher than a play initiator. But... He also, it's not like he's a totally dependent scorer either. Like he, I think used to be to a greater extent than he is now, but I also think that he has showed in this playoff run that he can create a whole lot of stuff for himself. And so I don't want to get too caught up in this admittedly miserable performance because it was a really bad performance. I mean, he had four turnovers and two fouls before he even attempted a field goal in this game. But I mean, he was, to me, the Lakers' best player in games one and two. And that didn't necessarily mean him being their primary initiator. But he was essentially their number one option. He had their highest usage on offense in both of those games. And he was carrying them through long stretches. And he was doing that while completely blowing up what the Heat were able to do at the other end of the floor, at least in game one, less so in game two. But I think that's just like a good illustration of how and and he's not their best player all the time, but he was their best player in those two games and they won those two games. And I just think it's difficult because context is so important. So it's hard to get too caught up in like what you can or can't do if Anthony Davis is your best player. Because yeah. overall, I still do think that, you know, LeBron is the Lakers' best player. But let's say that Anthony Davis was on a team with... I don't know. I'm just like, I'm trying to think of an example of a player who would fit with him really well, who could take on, you know, the offensive initiating duties. Like, let's say it was Damian Lillard. Who do you think is the better player between AD and Lillard? Lillard. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. What about Chris Paul? 
I guess at this stage of their careers, maybe AD, but I don't know, man. I, I think I would almost still lead. Like, I know it sounds so weird. I, I think I might still lean Paul just because of the value I place on the ability to quarterback an offense when you're a star player. Yeah. So that, this is where I think, you know, and, and maybe we're just getting into semantics here, but like, to me, I would say no doubt Anthony Davis is a better player than Chris Paul, but Anthony Davis on a team with Chris Paul, you know, Chris Paul would have the ball in his hands right. a lot more than Anthony Davis would, but that doesn't mean that he would be impacting the game more significantly or in more ways than right. AD was. And I think, you know, depending on what the team looked like around those two guys, that team could very well be good enough to win a championship. And then boom, AD is the best player on a championship winning team. And so I think to ignore that context is what leads to a lot of faulty arguments and leads the discourse to break down a lot of the time because you can't you can't ignore context. And and I think like this entire playoff run, AD has been unbelievable. He was unbelievable in those first two finals games. I'm not saying he gets a pass. He stunk it up in game three, but I expect him to bounce back. And I you have to account for the fact that like different players do different things. And sometimes you're comparing apples and oranges, like comparing Anthony Davis to Jimmy Butler is comparing an apple to an orange. And but they're still both basketball players. <laughs> so like, I, I understand what you're saying. Apples like, and oranges they, are both fruits. They, they, right. They both like, yeah, they have very different roles and impact the game in very different ways. hundred percent. And Anthony Davis could like, like other players, um, big man or otherwise, could absolutely be the best player on a team without being the number one scoring option, 100%. But I think when you get to a certain stratosphere of wing scorer types or like offensive quarterback types, and I think Jimmy Butler is in that stratosphere, um, and I think Damian Lillard is in that stratosphere, I think there's a certain stratosphere of those types of guys, and Butler more so than Lillard because he's also like a two-way beast. But I think there is a certain stratosphere of like ball dominant players that when you're in at that level and a ball dominant player, I just find it so hard to ever view a guy who doesn't quarterback the offense or, or handle the ball or dominate a game in that way. I can't like see the val the similar value there, you know, even though I see the value in everything he does. I just think ball dominant players at that level have such a built in value that it's hard for a guy even as good as AD is to match that overall value. Well, he's doing it which isn't way. which sometimes not, it's not even a fault of their own. He AD is like not a playmaker and that to me is the big difference, but like he can be a ball dominant isolation scorer. I mean, we've seen him do that very recently. And this is a guy who finished second in defensive player of the year voting this year who is also giving you, you know, 30 plus efficient points in games 1 and 2 of the finals. So you know, he's not necessarily setting everybody else up for success. Like, he's not exactly a table setter. But, you know, he's still able to be an efficient driver of offense on his own, at least on an individual level. And to be able to do that while being, you know, a world-ending defender when he's at his best, which defensively he wasn't in games two and three. And that was as big a problem, I think, as anything. But yeah, I, I still see a ton of value in that. And like, I... I, I would still say that I think he is a better player than Jimmy Butler, but I mean it's it's fine to think otherwise as well. I just don't want to like let recency bias completely On, yeah overwhelm that, the debate here. And again, and that's why I mentioned off the top, like what he did in the first two games of the series and what he's done 
this season in his career and this playoff run especially is, is unbelievable and take nothing away from him. It's just, I think for me, like what was, I guess, most disappointing about game three, it's not just that like he had a bad game. Like like I said, it happens. LeBron has had bad finals games. I think it was like the, I don't know, like some of it was body language, this kind of like defeatist attitude. He just didn't seem very like engaged. I, I don't know how to describe it. And I think that's what seems so disappointing is it's like, man, you're Anthony Davis. This is your first finals trip. You're up to nothing. This game is still very much in play. If they get like even five more minutes of really kind of engaged, like balls to the wall AD, and he just kind of never flipped that switch. And I think that's what, again, more so than just the numbers and the overall results, it was like the process of what I was watching with AD last night that it was just so disappointing. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Okay, let's talk about this then, because this sort of segues nicely into talking about the Heat defense and what they did. They had a mandate coming into this game, clearly, to pack the ever-loving shit out of the paint. They're fronting Davis on those post-ups, and they have help waiting on the back end. And they're just loading up on his post-ups and not really allowing him to get comfortable at all. There are ways that the Lakers could have countered that, that I don't think they did enough. Like they could have, I mean, they didn't even really play Dwight Howard that many minutes. He played 15 minutes. So if you're playing, you know, without another big man on the floor and they're loading up on Davis post-ups, I mean, maybe involve him in pick and roll a little bit more. Like he's not getting the ball in the spots that he wants them in the mid post. Uh, Try to use him as a role man a little bit more often. And I think, you know, he actually had a really nice stretch late in the third quarter where he had like a really nice put back dunk and a tough turnaround fadeaway. And then in the fourth quarter, it was like, it all fell by the wayside. Like he was completely frozen out of the offense, whether that had to do with his own lack of assertiveness or just the fact that the Lakers weren't really running any plays for him or involving him at all as an on ball or an off ball screener. I mean, so much of their offense sometimes is just AD like setting that wide pin down and the Lakers running their offense out of the corner. And we didn't see a whole lot of that. Instead, what we saw was basically just LeBron every time down trying to attack Duncan Robinson and pick and roll. And that's not a bad idea by any means, but I do think you're, essentially letting AD's talents go to waste. And maybe they just went away from him because they knew he didn't have it. But it was sort of two-pronged, right? One of it was the Heat doing a lot to take AD out of the game. And then another one was the Lakers kind of taking AD out of the game by just going away from him completely. Yeah, I think I think the Heat, like as I was saying, the Heat, I think, helped AD and the Lakers neutralize himself, right? Like they, I think there are... There's some blame to go around between the Lakers' offensive approach and AD himself, but also, you know, we should be able to do that without taking away from what the Heat did because they clearly um, had a game plan on how to 
at least disrupt AD's rhythm and, you know, impact on the game. And it worked. It worked perfectly, essentially. Yeah. And like you, if you just look at the Lakers shot profile, I mean, they took more than half of their field goals from three point range, which is just not the Lakers MO at all. I mean, that is the heat forcing the Lakers away from their bread and butter. And they, you know, Jimmy Butler, I said, had 26 points on the paint in this game. The Lakers only had 34 as a team, which for the Lakers is really, really low, especially, if you know, after you see what they did in game two. And like, this is really important because as as good as Butler was, the, the Heat had their best offensive game by offensive rating in the entire postseason in game two of this series. And guess what? Nobody cared. It didn't matter. Nobody talked about it because... They still lost comfortably, but they lost comfortably because the Lakers were ridiculous at the offensive end as well. And at one point, we're like 25 for 28 from two-point range and wound up shooting 66% from two for the game and got anything they wanted inside the arc. And this game was obviously a different story. So, you know, Butler could have had the exact same game that he had offensively, and the Heat still would have lost if they didn't defend way, way better in this game than they defended in game two. And that goes both ways, you know? Part of part of that is the Heat for executing well and playing good, tough, hard-nosed defense. And part of it is the Lakers just not really bringing it in the way that they have for the first couple of games. Um, and, and I thought, you know, to me, like, I, I thought that, playing as much zone as they played in game two was almost kind of necessary given that they were playing multiple weak defenders at the same time. And it's just a way to hide, you know, when, when Olenek's out there with Kendrick Nunn and Tyler Hero, the best way to hide those guys is by playing zone, but they played almost exclusively man to man in this game. And, it, you know, obviously did a much, much better job in that alignment that they were doing in the zone uh, in game two. Yeah. And to that point, like shout out to Jay Crowder and Andre Godala because as part of that man-to-man look, those were the guys that were actually tasked with guarding AD for ve- not the entire game, but for very large stretches of this game. You know, to start the game, uh, Myers Leonard started on Dwight and Crowder started on uh, AD and did a really good job on him, like, you know, bodying him up and using as much size and strength as he could while giving up so much size and strength in that matchup. And then I was concerned when Crowder picked up the two early fouls because of how great he had started the game that it was going to be all downhill for Miami from there because I thought AD was going to kind of get into rhythm, start feasting. And then even when you bring Crowder back, like now he's just already used to kind of beasting on these smaller guys and it's game, set, match. And instead, Andre Guadalla comes in and kind of does just as good a job as Crowder did in the first place. Um, Again, they didn't spend the entire game with like a super small guy on them, but for large stretches of the game, it's one of Crowder or Guadalla in a mostly man-to-man look, obviously with some help and some doubles and some paint packing for sure, but it still takes one of those guys at least making him a little uncomfortable on the catch, pushing him out of where he wants, like the spot he wants to catch the ball, even by a few inches. Like those, those things add up, you know, when when you're a great offensive player who's maybe comfortable in some situations or wants to catch the ball in a certain place, you get pushed off that by a few inches. That's, you know, that's going to be a different possession, a different shot coming out of it. So I think Crowder and Iguodala especially deserve a lot of credit for how uncomfortable they made Anthony Davis, especially after a couple of games, and game two in particular, where we all spent so much time talking about how AD is too big, too fast, too whatever for this Heat team, right? And then, as is the case in playoff series, that 
um, change complexion so quickly from game to game. Now, after game three, we're talking about how Jay Crowder and Andre Iguodala did a great job guarding Anthony Davis despite giving up all that size to him. Well, yeah, a big part of it was just that they made it really difficult for the Lakers to even enter the ball into the post, mm-hmm. you know, because of how they were fronting Davis uh, and and just crowding him on the catch. You know, we saw what happened early on in the game when they were trying to force feed him in the post. They were just swarming him and forcing him into turnovers time after time. And, you know, the Lakers never really found a great adjustment for that. Like their adjustment to that was basically to stop force feeding AD in the post, which... I mean, based on how the, the the game started and how AD was looking was probably the right adjustment. But at the same time, to react to that by kind of freezing him out of the offense altogether is not going to be a winning strategy over the long haul. So they obviously need to come with some counters and find a way to get him back in rhythm. And I think, look, you said you thought LeBron had a pretty good game, all things considered. The The standard with LeBron is so high that, you know, even a, a poor game by LeBron's standard is like the best game that most players in the league have ever had. Right. And I thought, you know, he was still pretty good in this one, but he did turn it over eight times. And a big thing for me, so like I said, they're, really their primary mode of attack was just to have a guard come and screen for LeBron. And so you could pick on like Hero or Robinson, especially. Yeah, it really, really picking on Duncan Robinson, right? Like that was the guy that they were going after time after time. And a lot of times they had success with that. But the Heat basically, it seemed for a while they didn't quite know what they wanted to do with that. I think just sending two to the ball in that situation isn't the worst thing in the world because, like, if it's Caruso setting the screen, or even if it's Danny Green or KCP with the way those guys are shooting the ball right now, I don't think you're too worried about that screener like slipping into space and catching the ball. You know, whether it's popping a three or whether it's rolling and trying to execute a four on three, like, are you that scared about what one of those guys can do in that situation with the ball in their hands? I think the danger really comes when if you're trying to show and the show is a little bit too soft and LeBron, like a couple times he just straight up split two guys and a couple times he just turned the corner without much issue. And then suddenly it's like LeBron kind of going downhill with like a five on three. And that's when it gets really dangerous. What I thought the Heat essentially settled on in the second half was it basically is show and recover, but they're treating it almost like a temporary switch where when Robinson is showing, he's staying on LeBron for like a full two seconds. And then him and Butler are executing that switch back. And I didn't think LeBron dealt with that particularly well. I think for one thing, he wasn't attacking quick enough. And when like he has an opportunity to attack when the Heat are switching back. And he did a couple of times, but also, you know, on a couple of those occasions, he traveled. So I know it's easier said than done. But basically, you have an opportunity. There's a window where you can catch Robinson with his back turned when Butler still hasn't recovered to the ball. And I don't think LeBron was quick enough attacking in those situations. He was allowing Butler to switch back onto him with no advantage created, really. Um, and another another wrinkle that the Lakers showed a couple of times that I think maybe they'll do a little bit more of, when they rescreened, that also completely screwed up the Heat's ability to execute that switch back. And 
Um, there was one play in particular where they they did the rescreen and LeBron sent like Robinson was trying to switch back, realized too late that the the second screen was coming, um, and then LeBron kind of waltzed into the paint. Kelly Olynyk had to help off the strong side corner. LeBron found Markeith Morris for a corner three. So I definitely think that, and like the process stuff wasn't terrible for the Lakers. Like they got 21 corner threes in this game, which is a ton, but Danny Green missed 20 of them. (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean that, and that's just really rough. Like that's a kind of underplayed element of why the Lakers offense struggled. And it didn't matter in game two, because again, the Lakers two point offense was completely insane. But the fact that Danny Green and KCP in the last two games have shot collectively six for 33 from the field and four of 26 from deep is a problem because that does give the Heat license to just completely pack the middle of the floor and dare those guys to beat them, load up on LeBron, load up on AD and say, hey, like, here you go. You know, Caruso, Rondo, KCP, Danny Green, Markeith Morris, take your best shot. Yeah, I think another problem on the other end of the court, and it was one that was frustrating me, especially down the stretch, is what's the point of having LeBron James guard Jimmy Butler, especially in crunch time, if you're just going to switch every screen and allow Jimmy Butler to then abuse Contavious Caldwell-Pope or another smaller-than-LeBron Lakers defender and back him down? Like, it, it didn't really make sense to me, and I don't know how much of that was the Lakers plan, which I can't imagine, or was LeBron gassed? I don't know, but it was, they were conceding that switch way too easily. And that falls on LeBron too. He was conceding that switch way too easily. Like they, they had LeBron on Butler to start almost every possession in crunch time. And I would say maybe once out of all those possessions, LeBron actually finished the possession guarding Butler because they just kept switching the screens and it was often KCP. I think, yeah, it was KCP almost every time actually. Ended up on Jimmy Butler, and you know KCP's a solid defender, but he doesn't have the size to hang with Jimmy. And uh, yeah, that it, I, I mentioned it in my post, and, and it was like a frustrating thing to watch. And I can only imagine for Lakers fans if you're sitting there watching that thing, and okay, we got LeBron on Jimmy Butler, and four, five, six possessions in a row, you're seeing it switched on the screen, and now it's KCP on Jimmy Butler with you know the game on the line. Essentially, it was uh, once, twice, okay, but how that was allowed to happen possession after possession I just don't understand yeah I think it's possible that fatigue factored into it for sure and honestly I think part of it is that the Lakers probably thought you know KCP or Danny Green or Kuzma like collectively could limit Butler to the point that they wouldn't get burned too badly for giving up those switches and like on the last episode which we recorded after game one we were kind of giving it to the heat for conceding those low resistance switches onto LeBron. And I think there's an element of like, I I hesitate to use the word disrespect, but I don't think the Lakers showed enough respect to Jimmy Butler and what he was going to be able to do against some of those switches. And I think they felt like, you know, they would be able to survive no matter which of their wing defenders was guarding him because, you know, I don't think it's completely unreasonable. Like Butler hadn't showed this level of aggressiveness as far as hunting his own offense at any point in the finals. And there is this impulse that he has to be more of a facilitator at times. And we even saw this in this game, this game where he dropped 40 points, 
he was still passing out of layups and driving, you know, to pass more so than he's driving to score. So for them to think that they could survive one-on-one with somebody like KCP or Danny Green or Kuzma on him is not totally misguided. But I think given, you know, all the evidence that they had that that wasn't working, they probably should have worked harder to avoid those switches in the fourth quarter. And, you know, in the same way that I think the Heat could do a better job of going under screens against LeBron, the Lakers could do some of that against Jimmy Butler as well. Because if he's going to burn you with pull-up jumpers, I think you really prefer that to him burning you with his drives to the rim. And so that's something where I just think, you know, it comes down to just being disciplined and smart and executing better. Like one possession when Kuzma was on him, he's guarding Jimmy in the corner and Butler pump fakes him off of his feet. It's the fourth quarter and he literally has not attempted a single three this entire game. And yet he's completely destroying you inside and you're going to jump at a pump fake for him in the corner and let him blow right past you. And like, I think that play ended up with him getting to the free throw line on the drive. I think you just got to be smarter than that. And like, if he wants to take pull-up jump shots and you have to just let him take pull-up jump shots, like don't let him completely destroy you going downhill the way that he did. Yeah. And I also wonder how much of that is like just the psychological um, impact of knowing it's two nothing and knowing that you've got this, not just the built-in advantage, but the built-in cushion, right? Like even some of the stuff with the LeBron fatigue and whether that played into him conceding those switches and allowing a KCP, for example, to take on the Butler assignment off the switch, you know, does that, if it's 2-1, which it now is, you know, if if the difference is you lose this game and now it's a tied series as opposed to, ah, you lose, you're still up 2-1, does LeBron concede that switch? Uh, you know, maybe whether it's Kuzma or someone else, are you more disciplined? Like, are you just more kind of locked in on every possession when you know, like, shit, we can't lose this game. This can't turn into a best of three. Um, I think psychologically, like some of that plays in here. I would expect LeBron is a lot more forceful early in game four and that they probably are spending the next day or so figuring out how to make sure Anthony Davis is more involved and well. Because even if Bam comes back, obviously that gives you know the Heat a, a totally different look and makes them a lot more capable of winning four games in the series. But I think we'd both agree that at the end of the day, if you get forceful LeBron and and still get Anthony Davis involved, you know, even close to as much as he should be, even at full strength, it's still an uphill battle for Miami. I agree. But, but I think, you know, like they, they have to come with some ready-made adjustments for game four. Like the heat have given them a lot to think about. And I I do think a lot of it, you know, most of it is stuff that the Lakers are absolutely capable of and that they just need to recognize and and then come out and execute it. I I definitely expect them to look like a much different team in Game 4. I only have one question left about Game 3. Okay. Why did J.R. Smith play 5 minutes and 28 seconds? Yeah, I was... 5 minutes and 28 (laughs) seconds more than J.R. Smith should have played in this series. I was was actually going to mention that, kind of lumping that in with this general lack of urgency that the Lakers played with, because I think playing J.R. Smith 5 and a half minutes demonstrates a lack of urgency. There was no reason for him to play. And yes, I know he hit a three, but I thought overall that was a really rough stint for him. Butler was hunting him at the defensive end. And then at the offensive end, he's making some real questionable decisions. Like when he catches the ball on the wing on a driving kick from LeBron, sprint dribbles into the corner to take a three as he's falling out of bounds, you know, just ahead of the halftime buzzer. I just didn't get, and like part of that, is that AD only played 33 minutes in this game. And I know like he was a minus 26 in those 33 minutes. 
So I suppose you could argue that him playing more minutes wouldn't have made any difference and maybe would have even had a negative impact on the Lakers. But I don't buy into that because ultimately, look, Anthony Davis is your second best player. So if he's going to be terrible and you're going to lose because he's terrible, then just lose that way. But don't lose because you're not playing him enough. And 33 minutes for AD in the game. Look, this this wasn't a must win for the Lakers, but you should be trying as hard as you can to win every single game in the finals. And Vogel, to his credit, let AD play through four fouls when he picked up his fourth early in the third quarter. But what did AD end up with? He ended up with four fouls in the game. He's not a high foul player. So why are you taking him out earlier than when his normal substitution pattern would dictate in, I I actually didn't, I didn't have an issue with it in the first quarter because like I said, AD had four turnovers and two fouls before he even got a shot. He he needed to sit. Yeah. So, so I didn't have a problem with that. But then when he picked up his third foul in the second quarter on what I thought was actually a really questionable charge call on Kelly Olynyk, that's when I think you could have just let him play and try and get him in some kind of a rhythm and just be like, okay, you have three fouls, but we're going to let you play through it. I know there's more to think about than that because you want ad to be able to be aggressive on defense and if he's playing with foul trouble then maybe you think that he's not going to be able to do that and it limits his effectiveness but i would have just let him play through the three fouls in the second quarter and that probably would have avoided having to play jr smith replacing anthony davis with jr smith in the second quarter of a finals game that you're currently losing is like the ultimate this is not an adverse situation for us to prove you know like yeah, you know, I, I think you tweeted, right? That was the most disrespectful thing the Lakers had done to the Heat all series. Yeah, like it, they bullied them for much of games one and two and let them know it with trash talk. And yes, I, I consider that substitution way more disrespectful than any of that trash talk. I, I feel like that was like LeBron just giving Frank Vogel permission to like be on some bullshit in game. They'd be like, yeah, don't worry about it. We got this. We got this. Because that it was like pretty inexcusable. But I... I don't expect that there will be much more of that from the Lakers now. Like their back's not against the wall. Obviously they're still up two one and are the better team with the best player in this series. But I feel like we'll see a very different Lakers team. I'm quite confident and almost sure that we will see a very different Lakers team from a, from an urgency perspective and, and LeBron and AD from a forcefulness perspective out the gates on Tuesday night. I agree. And I think that if Bam is back and close to fully healthy, like if Bam's back at 90%, then we could see a very different Lakers team and they could still be up against it. You know, like the Heat can still win that game four. I I don't think, I'd have a hard time believing that the Heat can win another game in this series if they don't get at least one of those two guys back. And specifically Bam. As much as I love Dragic and really respect what he's done this entire postseason and how important he's been to that team, like, Bam is the guy that they need to get back. He is like the more important player to this team. And it's really impressive what they were able to do with Myers Leonard and Kelly Olynyk basically splitting the center minutes in this one. But once the Lakers kind of come back with some counters and figure out how they can better attack this heat defense with one of those two guys in the middle, uh, I think it's going to be a different story. Although, yep. look, I you know I said at the beginning that I thought Olynyk had a place in this series. And I think his value kind of showed through in the game that Butler was able to have because without Olenek dragging AD out of the paint with his gravity as a shooter, Butler does not have the kind of success 
scoring inside the arc that he had in this game. And, uh, I, you know, I think I, I, we saw a couple of the times that Butler did pass out of those drives. It was because Davis was just in the vicinity, not even necessarily in position to block his shot, but just basically in the area. And you saw the effect that, that can have as far as just spooking drivers. But a lot of the time he wasn't even in the vicinity because Olinick was dragging him out to the perimeter. So I, I do think that there's a lot of value in that. And that even when Bam comes back, that, you know, there's there's room for Olinick to play pretty big minutes. You know, he can obviously give you some minutes as a five, but I think that we'll see him and Bam playing together, you know, and overlapping for maybe 15 minutes a game in order to kind of match the Lakers when they go big and in order to pull their bigs out of the paint to make it easier for the Heat to score at the rim. I think we'll for sure see that. I think it's funny too, because after game one on the last episode, we talked about how while while playing Olenek will come with some defensive drawbacks and LeBron's picked on him in the past, you know, especially with Bam out, they're going to need him. And we talked about how like, you know, maybe Olenek just getting hot is one of those things you can't, like you can never bank on, but just needs to happen. You know, if, if the Heat are going to steal a game or get back in the series and then sure enough, after um, being benched for the majority of about three or four games in a row, games two and three in the finals, Olenek has 41 combined points on 56% shooting, shoots six of 12 from deep. Like, you know, we joked after game one about how you need some seemingly unrealistic or maybe unsustainable stuff to go your way if you're Miami based on everything that had happened after game one. And look, they, they've gotten some of that. Um, and, and some of that was just Jimmy Butler turning in a once-in-a-lifetime performance that we will never forget. And if nothing else, look, I, the Heat could be healthy and not win another game in this series, um, and it could be over by the end of the week. But if nothing else, I'm really, really, really happy that Jimmy Butler got to attach his name to a performance like this on this stage because there are a few guys in the NBA that deserve it as much as this guy after all the grinding he's done in his career. Yeah, I mean, I even said... I thought his game two performance was unbelievable in a losing effort. And I was like, you know, this was an incredible Jimmy Butler performance that is going to be completely lost to history. And I don't think this game three performance will be lost to history. So I'm with you there. I'm glad he got to have his moment. And it certainly is is not guaranteed that that will be the last moment that he has in this series. And there's no guarantee that it will ultimately be be a futile one that comes in a losing effort. I mean, the Heat, again, if they can get healthy, definitely have a puncher's chance of getting back into this series. So can't wait to see what happens from here on out. Glad that we actually have some drama and some competitiveness and that there is a little bit of scoreboard pressure now on the Lakers and that they're going to have to up their game going forward. We'll be back later in the week to recap the series as it continues to go on. For now, we're going to sign off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, down the rock.